that if there is any argument for sitting down the front, it's that you've got all the voices behind you. And you can encourage the preacher, as my dad always used to say to me. Um, I'm Mike, I'm one of the pastors here. I'll be speaking now from that um, amazing section that we just read. So if you'd like to turn back in your Bible, we're in Exodus 15 and 16. There are some things in life that grow sweeter through adversity. There are many things in this world that become finer or more beautiful or greater when they are tested. We can think of examples. Uh, I'm wearing a gold ring. This ring didn't start out that shiny and, 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 and fine. It had to be refined, put through some kind of process, through some sort of fire to make it the, the, the the, the gold that we would wear. The creation of diamonds, as I understand, diamonds don't just grow on trees. They have to be in some kind of high-pressure environment in the depths of the earth, being squashed for goodness knows how many thousands of years until what was just a lump of carbon becomes an incredibly precious and beautiful stone. Uh, pearls. Pearls also don't grow on trees. They grow inside creatures. And the way a pearl grows is that an irritant gets into the life of that creature. And over time, the reaction within the creature creates a beautiful sphere that we would prize, cover. These are examples of beauty coming through adversity. Also, there are things that only get stronger when they face adversity. Think about a cricket bat. Those of you who know anything about cricket, the cricket bat is made out of willow, I believe. And the bat, when it is newly made, is actually quite weak. If a, a, a cricket bat that was brand new and fresh was bowled a hard bowl into it, it would probably split. So the cricketer has to spend a long time, hours, doing what they call knocking in the bat with a, with a, a, a certain kind of mallet or a hammer, pounding it, hitting it, knocking it, hundreds and hundreds of times, until in the end the bat is made strong through the adversity. Gold, diamonds, pearls, cricket bats. If you think about... Anything in the natural world, really, things get stronger and sweeter through adversity. And what we see in the natural world is also true in the world of relationships. The world of relationships. If you think about any significant good relationship that you have, I bet it went through a hard time and you went through that. In fact, for a relationship to get really deep and rich, satisfying and real, It must go through some adversity. Friendships are like this. Relationship between parents and children are like this. Relationship with a spouse. And it is in the period of testing, the pressure and the challenge, the fire, that's where you have to work things through and then you find new depths and new beauty and new strength. And that is true of any human relationship. Now, it is also the case in our relationship with the living God. We're on a journey here at King's Church at the moment through the book of Exodus. Uh, Our theme for the series is know the Lord, know the Lord, because Christianity doesn't just promise you a religion, a new religion with some doctrines, some worship practices, some guidelines for life, a frame of reference. It does give you all those things. But Christianity goes a lot further than that because all of that is in the context of a relationship. Christianity promises you a real relationship with God. 
the Father, Son, and Spirit, the triune God, a relationship with your Lord and Savior. You can know the Lord in your personal experience. In fact, you must know the Lord. But if our relationship with God is to be real, then it's that it will go through different times. All the changing scenes of life in trouble and in joy. And there may be a honeymoon phase in the spiritual life. Good times, lovely times, easy times. But the relationship grows in the wilderness. And we are faced, therefore, with a decision every day. Am I going to rest in God and draw strength from him today? Or harden my heart and walk away from him every day? Am I going to grow in trust and love or harden my heart when things go against me? This is a choice we're faced with every single day. And especially, of course, when circumstances are against us. When God doesn't behave in the way we expect it. There's nowhere in the Bible we see this more clearly than in Exodus. The contrast between the honeymoon phase and the wilderness is so dramatic. The descendants of Abraham had gone down to Egypt. They'd grown into a great nation. After 400 years, they were now a large people group, numbering hundreds of thousands. They've also been enslaved by powerful kings called pharaohs. And these pharaohs have exercised their power with increasingly crushing and brutal force. At one point, a pharaoh ruled that all the baby boys of the Hebrews should be killed to subjugate the population. At another time, a pharaoh subjected them to slave labor uh, to break their spirits so they were too weak to have any kind of organized revolution. And then God stepped in and he gave them his name. And his name was I am who I am. He came to their rescue. He brought them out of Egypt and he taught everyone who he was. He was honoring his promises to their ancestor Abraham. And he was creating a new people who would worship him and give him glory and make his name rightly famous in the whole world so that ultimately the whole world would benefit from these Hebrew people. And most dramatically, God had recently parted the waters of a sea, the Red Sea, and the Israelites had walked through on dry land. But when Pharaoh and his avenging army came through, the Lord released the waters and the violent oppressors were drowned in the flood. They were liberated. And that day, they sang a song at the sea. It's a song of salvation. They celebrated. They adored God. How great is our God. I'm so glad we sang that this morning. I wasn't involved in picking the songs. How great is our God. Sing with me how great is our God. And all will see how great is our God. That's what they were singing. Who he was. Proclaiming him. Anticipating a glorious future with him. And it was glorious. And the song was true. And it was genuine. And they felt those feelings. But you know, it was just the beginning. And then they went into the wilderness. A bit like a honeymoon. What we read from now on is about real life. Real life is all about making this choice. Am I going to rest in God? And draw strength from him today? Or am I going to harden my heart and walk away? Now we read about two episodes in the desert. The first one is bitter water which is mysteriously solved by throwing a log into the water. And then we read about the, the hunger and the grumbling and the manna. And I want to share three points from these stories today. The tests of the heart, the tendencies of the heart, and the transformation of the heart. Tests, tendencies, 
transformation. Firstly, tests of the heart. We pick up the story in chapter 15, verse 22. If you've closed your Bible and you want to pick that up, it's page 73. Moses led Israel from the Red Sea and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days, they traveled in the desert without finding water. And so they grumbled against Moses. What are we to drink? Now, we The Israelites are known for grumbling. John did a lovely job there with Mr. Grumble. And I think we can be fairly critical of them for grumbling. But just think about it for a minute before we throw that first stone, shall we? Just in case we're in a greenhouse. Just imagine what it must have been like. Three days in the desert without water. Have you ever been on the beach for a full day without taking refuge under you know, the, the comforting shelter of a bar? Men, women, children, the very young, the very old, the aged, the disabled, huge flocks and herds, there's a limit to how much water you can carry. Have you ever been really thirsty? Have you ever traveled in the desert with no idea of where the next water source is? I don't think any of us know what that feels like. At that moment in their experience, what did life feel like? We could die here. And that's not the kind of death most people want to die. I want to die peacefully and sleeping like my father. Not screaming in terror like his passengers. My dad's not dead, by the way. It's a joke. You don't want to slowly watch a whole entire nation die of thirst under the merciless sun. What does life feel like for them at that moment? This isn't just about wanting a drink of water. This is about panic, fear. Talk about coming down from the crest of a wave. Not that long ago, they'd seen enough water to last them a lifetime. Now they can think about nothing else. So they grumble. And also there's a question for trading standards. Had Moses and Aaron promised them a three-day journey into the wilderness to worship God. And now here we are. It's been three days, you know. No sign of civilization. Moses and Aaron are scratching their heads, looking at the map. It's like, which way's north? And of course the sat-nav isn't working. The children are asking, are we nearly there? That's not doing it justice. But then things get worse. Because they see from the distance uh, what looks like an oasis. Some trees. They see trees on the horizon, hopes pick up, spirits lift. They go to this place. Thank God there's water at last. And there they are. And so they go and find water, this place called Mara. And they get down and and cup their hands and drink deep. Oh, it's bitter. The word Mara means bitter. Some desert waters are full of mineral salts. They are undrinkable. So Mara makes the situation feel much worse, doesn't it? It adds insult to injury. Imagine the sheer relief of seeing the trees in the distance. And then there's disappointment. This isn't going to help us. It looks like this leadership is bordering on cruelty. And then in chapter 16, the story goes on. They set out and they reach the desert of sin. That should have been a giveaway, shouldn't it? The desert of sin, you know you've got to be careful there. About one month after escaping from Egypt, and now the food runs out. And again, they start to panic. They're not starving yet. They must have still had flocks and herds. But asking a farmer in the, mid, the ancient Near East to start eating his flocks is like asking him to destroy his future. 
If you eat the flock, where's your future? You've got nothing left. Everything depends on the survival and growth of the flock. And after a month, they must have eaten nearly all the food they can carry. And the animals are getting skinny because there ain't much grass in the desert. And again, at this moment in their experience, there is no sign of where the food is going to come from. Someone once said that every society is only three meals away from a revolution. George Orwell apparently said that, said that Lenin refused to give money to beggars on principle so that they would starve and rise up in revolution. Few things are more overpowering than intense hunger. We've even invented a new word for this, haven't we? Hangry. And we're not starving. Hunger can drive people to do crazy things. Hunger combines with fear. What are we going to do? Where's the food going to come from? We can't trust these leaders. There's no natural way to feed hundreds of thousands of people in the desert. Humanly speaking, they've come out to the wilderness to die, and so they complain about the leadership, about the plan, about the provision. Now, have you ever wondered anything like this about your own life? Perhaps you trusted Jesus and you had a wonderful honeymoon phase of spiritual life. You enjoyed peace and joy you'd never known before. You felt a purpose and a hope kindling in your chest. You joined a unique community, the Church of Jesus Christ, where the most extraordinarily diverse group of people are brought together through grace. Not through talking about diversity, through grace. But that was then, and here you are now. And now maybe you're in the wilderness. There's a sun on your back and you can't see where the provision's going to come from. Why would God lead you into a desert place? Why does God lead them out of Egypt only to put them in the wilderness where life is terrible? And the answer must be that this situation is going to develop the relationship. So they will learn to trust and rest in God and not harden their hearts. There's a choice. Look at chapter 15, verse 25. Uh, Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became fit to drink. And there the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them, and, notice, put them to the test. Chapter 16, verse 4, over the, just further down the page. The Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see if they will follow my instructions. Now, when we hear the word test, I think test has a quite a negative connotation. I always think about maths tests. I was a terrible mathematician. At the end of year nine, at school in Kingston, I got 16% in the end of year exam in maths. And even I knew 16 wasn't a good number. Uh, in those days. A test. But this, we shouldn't think of this like a test that's there to trick you, you know, and catch you out and, and show you how you fail. God isn't testing people like that. This is more like proving someone's love. Proving someone's love. Are they, do they really love God and committed to following God or do they just want to use him for the benefits? We all know what it feels like to be in a relationship with someone who's, who uses us. Sooner or later we discover this isn't two-way. This is one way. That 
They're just using me for what I can give them. And it's a horrible feeling. And God's not in that kind, into that kind of relationship either. Why should he be? He wants us to love him, adore him, obey him, keep his ways. He's given everything to us. Will we use him for his benefits or learn to trust him through thick and thin and, or we will desert him every time life gets hard? This is how the heart is tested. And when it's tested, what do we see? Tendencies. Second point. The tendencies of the heart uh, are revealed here. And although I've been expressing some sympathy for the Israelites' predicament, there is another side to this, isn't there? Remember what they have just seen. Remember what they have just lived through. Remember how they've been delivered from Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Remember God's power over creation again and again. Remember how he keeps his promises, brings them through the Red Sea. So there is something absolutely perverse about the grumbling, isn't there? There's something absolutely perverse about it. Their response to the water crisis is to grumble against Moses. They turn against God's leader, the very guy who led them out of Egypt, within three days. <laughs> three days isn't that long. And then in chapter 16, it intensifies again. And then it says the entire community turned against Moses and Aaron. And all they can think about is food. Look at verse 3 of chapter 16 and the reference here to food. Uh, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt, there we sat round pots of meat. Ah, oh, and we ate all the food we wanted. But you've brought us out here to starve. They just forgot about the slave labor. They just forgot about the infanticide. What they remember for the moment is the Egyptians have great barbecue. Ah, oh, the barbecue in Egypt. It was like Korean barbecue. A never-ending supply of wonderful meat. Oh, why we miss that barbecue. Actually, in the book of Numbers, chapter 11, the Israelites add to this. If only we had meat to eat. And then they say this. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions and garlic. I mean, it was like laying it all out there. The way they talk about food. This food is now more vivid than anything else in life. The food is more real than anything else. The food is more real than God. In spite of the recent circumstances. But this is the tendency of the heart, and it's your tendency too, and I know it's mine, to focus on the immediate, to focus on the present experience. Never mind what God did for me last week, this week's terrible. To focus on how we're feeling right here and right now, and the body, the body's a terrible thing in some ways because the body can ruin our entire spiritual experience because of how we're feeling. Never ask me a Christian when I'm, if I'm a Christian when I'm ill. <laughs> we have incredibly short memories, don't we? We're, by nature, our tendency is to be fickle and ungrateful and quite short term. So they say in chapter 16, verse 3, something really ridiculous. You brought us out here to starve us to death if only we died in Egypt. How ridiculous that is. But that is the tendency of our heart too. Yours and mine. Take away anything familiar and comfortable. Put us in a hard place. We don't understand what's going on. We focus on the circumstances 
and we despair. Great London preacher of the 19th century, Charles Spurgeon, said in 1855, we never have any encouragement peevishly to ask God to let us die. But Christians are always wanting to die when they have any trouble or trial. Oh, let me die. You ask them why. Well, because we'd be with the Lord. Oh yeah, they want to be with the Lord when troubles and temptations come. But it's not because they're yearning to be with the Lord. It's because they want to get rid of their troubles. Else they would not want to die at all times when a little vexation is put upon them. Vexation. Let me ask you, in your life at the moment, are you vexed? What a great word that is. Are you vexed? Are you feeling trouble? Trouble, struggle, trial. Some years ago, I guess it was probably about um, 10 years ago, I would, we'd been in our previous church for about five years and it had grown somewhat and we'd, we'd been through various ups and downs and we'd had a good phase but then we were in a phase where things were really flat and things like, it felt like nothing was happening. And I knew people, friends of mine, whose ministry was going fantastically well people who weren't that far away from me. And yet here we were, just flatlined. And I remember an elders meeting, a meeting of our, our leaders, where it was just a really discouraging meeting. And I was really fed up and flat. And I went home and I wrote an email that was full of self-pity to the elders. And I said, I didn't sign up for this. <laughs> I'm embarrassed to say it now. I didn't sign up for this. So I was full of misery and self-pity. And that email was actually grumbling. I, I, was, I signed up for things to go well, by the way. <laughs> Just so you know. I'm only here because I think it's going to go well. You know. I didn't sign up to suffer. No. My dad, the one who's still alive went to a new church after being here for 20 odd years and having a wonderful ministry went to a church in Birmingham to serve and very soon after arriving a terrible conflict grew up within the church and within some ministries in the local community and it was like an irreconcilable breakdown of a relationship and sometimes sadly happens in church we have to be so careful of this and uh, he, he was like, he'd just arrived. You know, they've moved out, and they've moved up, they've gone to a small house, blah, 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 took a pay cut, and here they are, they've come, they've signed up, and what does God bring them into? An absolutely nightmare situation. Honestly, real nightmare situation. And my dad went to see an older Christian man, a very wise man, and the man said, hmm, perhaps the Lord has brought you here to suffer. Now that's not what you want to hear, is it? But it was wise, See, what we want to, I, I signed up for something good. But the tendency of the heart when things go wrong, therefore, is to grumble. And grumbling basically means, God, you don't know what you're doing. If only you knew the way things should run, everything would be fine now. Sadly, you've got it wrong. The tendency of the heart. Now, what is the solution for us to this tendency that we've all got? The solution, thirdly, finally, is the transformation of the heart. Notice, transformation of the heart, not transformation of the circumstances. 
The heat may stay, but the heart can change. How can we get a transformed heart that will not despair or give up when we are in the desert place? Now, firstly, we need to learn to trust God's word, even when it seems illogical and ridiculous. God's word says something ordinary and inadequate and weak can do something extraordinary. Notice what the divine solution to the bitter waters was. Go and get that log and throw it into the water. Want me to get that log and throw it in there? Yes, go and do it. God's word. Now, some people have argued, oh, maybe this was some kind of filtration system. But the point is, I think, that God tells Moses to do something that looks utterly weak, foolish, and destined to fail. But because of God's power, the humble log resolves the entire water crisis. It turns bitter to sweet. And the people are refreshed. And they're able to go through Mara to Elim, a place of great refreshment. We have to learn to trust the word of God even when it appears weak and foolish. Okay, that's the log. Secondly, we have to recognize God's provision when it comes. It's really beautiful that God's response to the Israelites, Hebrews, in this passage is not to blast them for their ingratitude. They complain, and he responds by raining food down from heaven. The bread from heaven is nicknamed manna. And the word manna in the Hebrew language means, what's that? <laughs> what is it? That's what, it mean, that's what manna means. It means, what is it? See, they've never seen anything like this before, this provision. There's a wonderful description of it. It's like flakes, and there's mention of coriander seed, and it's light, and it's there in the morning. What is it? It's bread from heaven, sustaining bread, provided directly from God. This is a miracle. And they are to gather it every day, only enough for one day. What does that mean? Is that a ringtone? How beautiful. Only enough for one day. That means you've got to trust God for tomorrow. And tomorrow, you've got to trust him for the next time. Ringtones turning into lift music. <laughs> you've got to trust him day by day. You can't just take, take a load of manna one day and oh, I'm okay for a month now. I don't know about next month, but I've got 30 days worth. No, because it goes off. It's part of the point. It's a teaching exercise. This manner is showing you you need to rely on God day by day. Now, what does this mean for us? How is the heart going to be transformed? How is life going to be renewed in the desert? How is bitter turned to sweet? Not by a log, but by a wooden cross. A foolish, weak, inadequate piece of wood. Something that appears so weak and foolish and failed. But the cross of Jesus Christ is the power of God that brings transformation. When circumstances go bitter, you need to look at the cross, not at yourself. You have to reason from God's word, which looks weak. If Jesus Christ did that for me, has he really abandoned me now? He did all that. If Jesus did that great thing, is he also going to love me in this lesser thing of living my life now? If Jesus Christ loved me 
enough to die for me, to pour himself, to give everything for me. If he's done that, will he not also give me all other things that I need and preserve me for heaven to be with him forever? So when circumstances are bitter or or even just boring, we need to look at the cross. And as we do that, day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, decade by decade, you will find that the bitter is turned to sweet. Amen? You'll find that the bitter is turned to sweet and the feeling of starvation is filled. Not necessarily because your circumstances change like that, but because you change in it. How is the heart transformed? Trusting the word of God and feeding on something supernatural, God's provision. Let me close with the words of Jesus reflecting on this passage. You don't have to turn. Jesus talked about this in John chapter 6. People asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus said, the work of God is this, believe in the one he has sent. He means himself, believe in me. So they said, well, what sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, and as it's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, Very truly I say to you, it's not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. And Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. So that's the provision you got to feed on, is Jesus himself. He is the true manna, the bread, the provision of God come down from heaven. The one who sustains our lives in the wilderness. And there is no other way. We're actually faced with a simple choice. When circumstances are hard or life is bitter, we can either give up and want to die or go back to Egypt and the old way of life. Or we can grasp Jesus Christ by faith and say, Lord, I don't know what you're doing here and I don't know how long it's going to go on for, but I trust you. You died for me. You lived for me. You you intercede for me. And you can be sustained by him day by day as you take each step. He taught us to pray Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. It means enough for today, the provision for every single day. It's got to go day by day. We have to receive that bread every day or it goes maggoty. We need to rest in the gospel, trust God, not wear ourselves out by our own efforts to control every outcome. Jesus is the true bread from heaven. So your circumstances may, change, may not change, but your heart can, and you will become sweet within them. But you must feed on Christ and rest in him every day because God only gives us grace for one day at a time. Notice chapter 16, verse 31. The people of Israel called the bread manna. It was white like coriander seed and it tasted like wafers made with honey. This week, a friend, Graham Gentry, shared uh, something he'd been reading, which is so wonderful, I thought I'd share it with you, about honey from a, a scholar called Andrew Wilson. 
Honey in the Bible represents God's gifts and God's grace. The first time we encounter honey in the Bible, it is given as a gift from one person to gain favor with another. And that pattern recurs several times. But when God gives honey to us, it is not to find favor with us or to trade it for something else. God doesn't need anything from you. He gives honey and his gracious gifts simply to bless. It is hard to think of a more unmerited, one-sided gift in the Bible than manna, which God literally produces out of the clear blue sky. Israel arrives moaning and exhausted, and God provides immeasurably more than they ask or imagine. So it may be significant that the manna tastes of honey. Honey is a symbol of the abundant sweetness of God's gracious gifts, which cannot be earned, horse-traded, bought, or exchanged. It can only be received. So receive the grace of Jesus Christ to you today, whatever your circumstances. Let's bow in prayer for a moment. Father, we won't get any choice about the wilderness, and it's not a place that we want to go to. But Lord, we acknowledge that if you take us there, it is to meet us there. If you take us there, it will be to meet us there. Thank you that your provision for us is so sweet. We're so obtuse we miss it. Thank you that your provision for us is so amazing that you would do things that look weak and failed, but they turn out to be strong and majestic. Lord, help us to take that step back towards you today, to enjoy the sweetness of your presence and to put our trust in Jesus Christ fully. Amen. Amen.